Hello, pals. Hey, friends. How's everybody doing? Good. Thank you. Great. I was, you're, all my, you're my only friend, so I'm <laughs> glad that you answered. We are fresh off of our first live show. It was a great time. Thank you to everybody who came and made it out supported us it was it was a real blast for anybody who didn't make it to the live show luckily we this is it was recorded sorry you couldn't make it i can only assume you don't have a car and, and the bus didn't go down you've never heard street. of a bus <laughs> you don't have a phone with which to call an uber you only have burners and they don't have apps on them yeah we had a good time yeah. you missed out on probably the defining moment of our generation we blossomed in front of everybody and you weren't there for it and it stunk <laughs> it was one of those stinky blossoms <laughs> it was our generation's ultimate. this time more people died though <laughs> we shouldn't have hired hell's angels <laughs> and sons of anarchy to do security for us but we did the vagos were handing out vouchers to everybody shouldn't have done that wait it was our first show okay we, we all make cherries. mistakes we're um, not perfect okay we just look perfect this is the live episode yes coming out you lucked out somebody taped it you got lucky this is the bootleg tape that's gonna sweep the nation mm-hmm. down there in the basement with bob dylan's <laughs> basement tapes and the nixon <laughs> the nixon tapes uh-huh. our favorite bootlegs by the way this recording is only 18 minutes long sorry <laughs> since it was a live show and we were talking about local commercials and we were showing the commercials it was a very visual show yeah. this isn't a visual podcast it's not one of those we can't afford to do that Mm-mm. bandwidth ever heard of it no <laughs> Go on. Know, are you a hacker <laughs> So hopefully we'll be able to uh, combine all the different elements. We had a video intro. We had a video intro. There is no intro that we're doing right now. We will put that up so you could see that. And then there were different commercials we showed, which we're hoping to have one page with links to all of these videos that you can click on and follow along in order. We had a lot of information that we had to cut out. If anyone was there, uh, (laughs) I lost the page right in front of everybody. I just said, forget all the stuff on page five. I'm going to get right to the end because if you watch the video, Daniel shakes the timer at me. If I didn't shake that timer, we would have went. We would still be on stage right now. <laughs> <laughs> and then you also had one that you really wanted to talk about as yeah, well. Yeah, I had that- to cut a whole. Yeah, sorry, you had to lose a page. I had to lose a man. <laughs> Was it in front of everybody? <laughs> no, I prepared in advance. <laughs> Yeah, so after the show, we're going to get to those things we didn't have time for. Yes. There's a little bit more about months, mm-hmm. and I have a whole other story about Larry H. Parker to tell you. You're about to hear our very first live show at mm-hmm. the Comedy Central stage at the Hudson Theater in Los Angeles, California. Enjoy. Yep. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hello. Welcome to the very first Ally Meekly Live here at the Comedy Central stage at the Hudson. Uh, We are recording episode 39 tonight. That's it. Uh, You're all in it. Guess what? You're all in it. You're not getting paid. Uh, All of your laughs and your hisses and your cries for help are all going to make the episode. Uh, The episode title tonight is going to be TiVo's Revenge because we're going to make you sit through a lot of commercials that you can't switch through. You cannot skip these ads. (laughs) A lot of the commercials uh, that we're going to play tonight, you'd see in like the dead of night or 11 in the morning on a Tuesday. Like either way. Which to some people is the dead of night. (laughs) If you're Um, depressed, (laughs) like that. (laughs) My favorite kind of commercials are daytime TV commercials because if you watch them in a row, it's clear that advertisers don't know how to sell you that stuff because they don't know why you're home that early in the day. They're like, what are you, old? Get life flirt. What are you, like a stay-at-home parent? Get this new kind of mop that we have. What are you, a high school dropout? Go back and get your GED. You'll be a dental assistant. Would you break all the bones in your body? Go back and get insurance, dummy. Like, why are you home? They can't figure it out. And I really like that about those commercials. So we're gonna be showing those kind of commercials. Um, what else am I missing? Oh, so much, right? Charm, class, charisma. <laughs> 
Uh, we're going to be talking about the people in those commercials. Who, who here is familiar with Michael's Furniture? <laughs> Sadness and growth. <laughs> Shop familiar. Uh, your neighbor's up there too. Two. <laughs> it's easy to think that advertising doesn't affect you, but when me and my girlfriend moved in together, we needed to get a new table, and I knew instinctively that I needed one with less overhead. Whatever that meant. <laughs> and I knew that we had to go to Michael's Furniture, so that's where we went. And I don't know if you've been to Michael's Furniture, but it's deep in the valley. Like, it's in the part of the valley that people who hate the valley are thinking about when they say that they hate the valley. <laughs> All of the valley. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> it's just like an overpass surrounded by porn warehouses. And the only green thing is what's growing out of the pave the cracks in the pavement. Like, that. that's the part of the valley. So we get there, and we're walking in, and I start trembling at the idea that Michael might be in there. <laughs> and that I'm gonna have to face him. And I tried to like calm myself down saying like, there's no way he's still working the showroom. Like Michael must have advanced past that. Like at a certain point, the Parker brothers were no longer gluing together Monopoly boards themselves. <laughs> there must be in a back office somewhere. We don't know that. Uh, so we go in, I'm like sufficiently uncalm. We go in. There he is. First person we see, Michael. And he is coming straight at us. And I start panicking all over again. I don't know what to do. Do I get him to autograph the table we're about to buy? Would that qualify it as damaged goods? And if so, what would the discount be? And he comes up to us, and he looks terrible. Like, he... The, he, he has not handled the fame of these commercials very well, and it has aged him beyond his years. He's not even pretending he has hair anymore. And on top of that, he sounds terrible also. Like, I don't know how many of you might get this reference, but he sounds like Super Dave Osborne. <laughs> Who sounds, sounds like that? You want a table? <laughs> Moral of the story, never meet your heroes. That's what it is. So we're going to be talking about four commercials in depth today and the people that made those commercials. But before we do that, we're going to show just a little refresher of some commercials you may be familiar with. So if we could play video clip two, that would be great. Who knows what new works in your dictionary? Any do. I know, baby. Any do. Hablamos español. We will not be doing this in Spanish. <laughs> All right, I'm going to be starting us off tonight. I'm going to go a little bit back in time. We're going to go back to the 40s. I'm going to talk about a man named Mad Men Months. Oh, why did I move that? Okay. <laughs> the dramatic effect. <laughs> Smash yeah. it on the table. Get out! <laughs> Earl Months was born in Elgin, Illinois in January of 1914. From a very early age, Months displayed a great deal of ingenuity at the age of eight. He started repairing radios for his dad and moved on to building radios for himself. And six years later, at the age of 14, he built a radio for his parents' car. Uh, he showed even more promise a year later at the age of 15 when he dropped out of high school, which was always my aspiration. <laughs> you didn't. I tried. They wouldn't let me. I just wanted to work in a coal mine. 
At the age of 20, in 1934, he started fixing up and selling old Model T Fords out of a lot in Algon. And uh, because he wasn't old enough to sign contracts, he had to have his mother sign all the paperwork for him. <laughs> Mommy, help me. Eight years later, after uh, hearing that automobiles are selling in California for much higher profits, he moved to Los Angeles. Muntz had two car lots going. One was in downtown on 11th and Fig, and the other one's in Glendale. I can't really figure out where. Because of the war, one of the wars, the one that happened in the war, <laughs> uh, selling uh, used cars was very lucrative. Uh, U.S. car makers started making more war-oriented vehicles, like Jeeps, and with that, there was shortage of new cars coming out. Uh, used car dealers were having their day, and thus the used car game became very competitive. Also, a factor for was uh, wartime gas rationing, which meant people were selling their cars, and Muntz was picking them real cheap. One of the slogans Muntz used was, walking is good for you, sell your car to Muntz. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. He took a really risky move when he purchased 13 right-side driver cars with the intent of selling them overseas where they would be like relevant. Uh, this was blocked by the government because of import-exports were being affected by the war. But a local newspaper ran a story about his problem and got enough attention that Muntz was able to sell the cars. This was an important lesson in Muntz's life. Attention sells stuff. Get attention. I'm trying to all the time. That's why I'm here. <laughs> the planet's middle child. <laughs> so uh, It's called Jupiter. <laughs> so Muntz hooked up with a young advertising whiz named Mike Shore to craft copy to get people's attention, utilizing TV and radio in ways that hadn't been used before. Uh, they both knew that they had to be vastly different because there was a lot of car competitors out there, a lot of like, like thousands of car dealers out there. The ads and copy were principally due to Shore, but it was Muntz who had to be charismatic. And boy, was he. They went to an animator at Warner Brothers Studio, and together they created a logo, which was Muntz dressed in a red Long Johnson and Napoleon hat. They called him Madman Muntz. The cartoon image was nice, but they would, they would need to get attention. He better dress up like that. <laughs> he did. The thing about Muntz that bothered me was that I kept reading what a wild showman he was, and uh, his, you know, his advertisements were wacky and all this stuff. And I kept looking. I went into the dark web. There was nothing out there. <laughs> But I bought four assassins. <laughs> Bitcoins, nice. Uh, he himself never appeared in a billboard or a commercial himself. You heard him on the radio, you saw his cartoon image, but you never saw him. So the months that you want to see was the live months, because he would be dressed up in a Napoleon hat and red long johns. Human commercial on the street. <laughs> the human commercial, yeah. So let, can we show slide one, please? That's months there. That's the logo. And we'll get to that slogan in a minute. <laughs> He'd be known to scream things that potential customers like, I buy in retail and sell them wholesale. It's more fun that way. Uh, Shore and Muntz put up billboards everywhere. One of them famously said, I want to give them away, but Muntz, Mrs. Muntz won't let me. She's crazy. <laughs> I think you're a crazy friend. <laughs> Can we switch to slide two, please? <laughs> Tell me that's a crazy man. <laughs> Convince me. Those eyes aren't real, by the way. <laughs> By some accounts, they ran up to 170 radio spots a day on 13 local radio stations. They spent $50,000 monthly on these radio and billboard ads which flooded the LA area. Months would do things like advertise for a particular car uh, with a special price and called the Daily Special. It was a car that had to be sold that day, or else, at the end of the day, he would smash it to bits with a sledgehammer. <laughs> and the car's kids had to watch. <laughs> This tactic worked because there's no record of him ever wielding a sledgehammer, so people took threats very seriously. There's like six cars, don't ruin one. <laughs> During the heyday of the McCarthy era, Muntz asked if it make the front pages if he joined the Communist Party. 
I don't know, ask the Rosenbergs. <laughs> <laughs> USC-UCLA game at the Rose Bowl, Mad Men Munts paid pranksters to hold out large flashcards that spelled out M-U-N-T-Z, Munts, for all the fans in the stadium to see. Not only did all his publicity and wild antics prove lucrative, uh, he built and sold $72 million worth of cars in the 40s. You can buy a Zeppelin, you can buy a lot of chips, you can take a trolley ride, and then you can have to sell the diamond over. Uh, <laughs> for a new car. For a new car, yeah. But he was also becoming really famous. Months lots became part of the bus tours, uh, along with stops like the La Brea Tar Pits. He was referenced in 35 of 37 of Bob Hope's comedy radio shows in the span of a year. So clearly, Rick Bob Hope was not doing well. <laughs> During one bit, uh, Bob Hope pushed an old Model T on stage and said, I had a little trouble getting here. Mad Mad Munch takes me for three blocks. <laughs> <laughs> and just like in Batman, Batman Munch's advertisement schemes escalated the sales game, and now there was a plenty of men dressing up like Trojans and superheroes trying to sell used cars. In the late 40s, Munch sold a Hudson dealership to a man in Huntington Park who liked to dress like a cowboy and hang from airplanes and play with tigers. Maybe I think I'll talk about him. Mm, that's odd. Please, say no more. Shut up. Keep going. <laughs> in 1946, a new invention started becoming a home necessity, television. World War II was over, so Munch started sniffing around and thinking, hmm, money, 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 money. So Munch started building, he started building, repairing, and selling television sets with a strong emphasis on selling. Here's something I read in a few articles, and I can't confirm it, but it sounds right. Mad Men Munch hired Skywriters to advertise for his company, but apparently they were running low on gas from so many trips up. So Earl, Mad Men Munch, had them shorten the word television, thus coining the term TV. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Hey, Chuck. Uh, this is your cousin Marvin Barry, you know that new abbreviation you've been looking for? Well, listen to that. Well, look in the sky. <laughs> he put out a series of animated commercials advertising Munts TV with a very catchy jingle. Can we play a video three, please? Factory commercial where he throws the, th the thing through the TV, like that's the brainwashing <laughs> commercial that everyone was watching. That video makes me want to sell my TV. <laughs> <laughs> to, to the fascists. <laughs> so Munt's TVs were made cheap, but they functioned, and they came out in a time where it didn't have much competition. He was manufacturing and selling 5,000 television sets a month. Uh, one antique he'd pull, he'd send a television knobs to customers in the mail with a note that read, call me and we'll show up with the rest of the set. <laughs> I hope it's all put together. Uh, in 1952, at the peak of Munt's TV's profits, he was raking $55 million in TV sets through like 72 stores nationwide. With numbers like that, he was able to sell television sets at low prices and still make money from it. Selling TVs would bring Madman Munt's his second multi-million dollar fortune. Okay, let's get to the good stuff. Uh, throughout his life, Earl uh, Munt's was married seven times. One wife's actress, Joan Barton, who co-starred in John Wayne's 1947 movie, Angel and the Batman. I don't know which one she was. Uh, they had two kids together, James Munts and his daughter. Want to know what her name was? Her first name was T, T-E-E. -E. No. Her middle name was V, V-E-E. -E. Her name was T-V. He placed her- woman. 
He placed a baby announcement in the local What's news. What's her number? <laughs> <laughs> he placed a baby announcement in the local newspaper to the effect of Muntz is welcoming a new eight-pound model TV. Her mother finally had her name changed to Tina with two E's because she knows the difference between a child and an ad. <laughs> He's also responsible for the early design of the eight-track tape, especially putting it inside of cars. He came up with a four-track tape was with a modification of a three-track tape, and someone took it beyond that, but he still got money from that. That was his third fortune. I think he made $30 million from that, and then he lost all of it. <laughs> Sued by his daughter. <laughs> <laughs> she had all the, all the rights were on her side. In his home in Sherman Oaks, he had 14 TV sets. There was one in the bathroom, one next to the pool, and there was one in the utility room. He was still doing wacky things, although not really for publicity. He had an antique Muntz Roadster he drove around the valley with a license plate N-A-M-D-A-M, which spelled Madman backwards, so you could see it in your rearview mirror. <laughs> People were still recognizing him well into his years at Madman Muntz, and they'd shout at him in the public. He was still selling car stereos, cell phones, and electronics in Van Nuys until he died in 1987 from lung cancer at the age of 73. Muntz has left a long legacy in Los Angeles and the wacky image of Southern California. Let's not forget that we had a restaurant shaped like a brown hat and a hot dog shaped like a hot dog. <laughs> it was only fitting to have a man in red long johns and Napoleon hat coining the term TV, which I need to remind you, what's his daughter's name? <laughs> bye, bye, bye. Uh, so now for one that I'm sorry to do to you, but here we go. Can we play video clip four? I've been working for a madman all the live long day. I've been working for a madman, he gives mattresses away. We never make a profit, especially on Labor Day. Can't he see the harm he's causing to his CPA? It's sick Labor Day sale with the lowest prices of the year. Save over 50 off Simmons, Sealy, and Serta. Normally $19.99, now just $9.87. With queen size sets starting at just $2.87. Plus, with your good credit, sleep interest free for three whole years with your minimum monthly payment and get free local delivery during Sit Sleep Labor Day sale. I've been working for a That's like a toothache for the brain. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's the ad campaign that probably made half of you irreversibly irritated and no longer interested in the rest of the show. <laughs> Fade in, West Los Angeles, 1950s. A little boy named Larry Miller, not that one, spends his youthful days trying to make a little money selling newspapers, firecrackers, and rare coins to whoever's gonna take them while he nurtures a dream of growing up to be a professional basketball player with a mantra in his mind, you're killing me, Larry Bird. <laughs> this dream did not pan out, but his no. father, Phil, was there for him offering the next best thing, a job in a mattress store. Larry helped out there working for tuition money while he went to Santa Monica College before transferring to CSUN and then dropping out during his senior year. Much to his father's, what I can only assume to be pleasure, he followed dropping out of college with a vacation to Tokyo <laughs> in the year 1971. But he saw something there that changed him forever. Hmm. No, it wasn't Godzilla. <laughs> it wasn't even Rodan. <laughs> it was Futon the space-efficient couch that could transform into a bed at will, the only one to defeat Godzilla. 
<laughs> this was at a time when Japanese stuff was first becoming cool to Americans. So when he got home, he tried to enlighten his dad in the ways of the futon. But him being an old-fashioned mattress man, he didn't relent till 1978 when he and Larry opened up their first store together, Rivera Convertible Sofas. Yep, the catchy name. Located in Culver City, not far from where the current flagship location is, uh, 3853 Overland Avenue, they sold futons, daybeds, and sofa beds, no mattresses. That wasn't a problem, because people apparently knew that comfort wasn't going to be important in the 80s. So futons were the way to go. They sold $200,000 worth in their first year, and futons went on to become, unfortunately, not the most regrettable thing from the 80s. They did good business, but that didn't mean that they had made it. It was still kind of tough for them. Like, Larry himself was delivering futons out of the back of his car after they closed up shop for the day. From what I can tell, in 1980, they figured maybe a change in name would help, so they rebranded themselves Sit and Sleep, referring you could sit on the futon by day, sleep on it by night. A beautiful invention. You're not selling it. Sleep. <laughs> it's, it's great, trust me. It'll hurt your neck, you'll wake up hating yourself. But when it came time for actual advertising, all they were doing in the early days was putting flyers on doorknobs and print ads in the Herald Examiner and LA Weekly. That wasn't enough, though. They were struggling to stay afloat. In 1985, a friend of Larry's dad was program director at the radio station KABC and got them an advertising spot on four nights of the Ray Bream show for $25 a spot. And once these ads started running, they got more business and then started to advertise on more radio shows. But Larry wasn't happy with these ads. So to remedy this, they, he felt like the, the radio hosts were reading it, they weren't putting enough enthusiasm. So he said, I can't afford an actor to do it, I'm gonna do it myself. Problem was, he was terrible. <laughs> he was so nervous, it took him like four hours to record one minute for the first ad, and it did not sound good. But he kept doing it, started getting more and more comfortable, and then the ad started taking shape. The next thing to call, fall into place was a catchphrase. One bitchin' day in the 80s. Larry took a phone call in front of the guy who was running his ad campaigns. Larry suggested a mattress to the woman on the phone, and she said, how do I know I'm getting the best price? He responded, ma'am, I'm the president of the company. I shop my competition every other week, and I'll beat any other price or your mattress is free. Write that down. I got it. <laughs> this is going to change the world. The ad, that, the ad guy insisted he used that, and the phrase, that'll probably be the last thing you think before you die, was born. <laughs> And then came the year 1991. Everybody in the country had one name on their lips. Howard Stern. In LA, <laughs> Howard Stern's ex-wives are all here. In Take LA, my lips, please. <laughs> Stern was broadcasting in LA on KLSX 97.1 and an ad guy from that station came to Larry asking him to advertise on the Howard Stern show. Larry hadn't heard of Stern, so he listened to him and he said, this cat's dirtier than crap. So he told him no, and then he told him no nine more times, and then the guy came back and he told him an eleventh time no, and then the guy left, and then he came back into the store crying because his car got broken into outside, and Larry felt so bad for him, he agreed to advertise on it, where Howard Stern ended up doing live reads and personally endorsing the store, which ended up growing business by 50%, and by the end of 1992, they actually started making a good profit. Things were so good that in 1993, they started doing TV commercials starring former basketball star Larry. <laughs> They had already established themselves as the first commercially successful mass distributor of futons on the West Coast, a proud title. But four or five years in, they had sensed that futons were going the way of the waterbed, and they, they had started selling mattresses, and by 95, they switched, it was just mattresses. And then business got even better, and Larry saw it was time to expand to new locations, but co-president daddy of his didn't want to do so. 
1996, he bought out his dad, and in 1997, sit and sleep, they opened up a second store in Tarzana. But not everybody was happy with this expansion. No. Larry's childhood friend slash accountant, Erwin Zygmunt. Erwin would call Larry, begging him not to open another store or do any more free giveaways because it was too much of a financial stress. Larry was annoyed by his accountant nagging him all the time, but it was another ad guy by the name of Carrie Sachs who saw that this dynamic between the two of them might make for a good commercial. So Sachs picked an ad between Larry and his accountant named Murray. Larry said no. We're not calling him Murray, we're calling him Irwin because he was so annoyed with the accountant he wanted to make it clear who they were making fun of. So Sachs, decided, Sachs himself decided he would play Irwin, who apparently looks exactly like you'd think he would. And the focus of these new ads would combine the old catchphrase with a new one that Irwin would actually say to Larry in his panicked phone calls, you're killing me, Larry. So that's how they would advertise. Then the recession hit in 2008, and Sit and Sleep got hit hard because new mattresses were luxury items that could wait. Everyone was sleeping on dirt dirt and potatoes. (laughs) So it was a tough time. I was in high school. (laughs) So to convince people that they needed new mattresses, in 2009, they rolled out a new ad campaign focusing on the health aspects of replacing your mattress, stressing that in eight years, a mattress will double in weight from the buildup of sweat and dust mite feces. Fake news. Science. (laughs) Prove it. (laughs) The new catchphrase became replace every eight, and this grossed out everybody enough for the business to bounce back. Today they have 38 locations around California. Each store takes in about four million a year on average. According to Larry, each of their individual salespeople sell more than an entire competing store does combined. In 2005, they relocated headquarters to Gardena. They spend around 18 million a year on marketing with the ads put out by Ideology Marketing and Marina Del Rey, who refer to the ads as a psychodrama <laughs> between Larry and Irwin. It's whatever happened to Baby Chin on the radio. Sachs still plays Irwin and his wife hates the ads and drives around town hearing them on the radio mumbling, I can't believe I'm married to Irwin. <laughs> Larry is still president and CEO. The company gives a lot to charities. He's given hundreds of mattresses to firehouses to make sure that they're getting a good night's sleep. They give scholarships out every year. People stop him on the street all the time for autographs or yell to him that he's killing them. <laughs> So if there's anyone who could get away with a murder in a cry wolf situation, look to Larry. <laughs> On top of that, he has never had to give away a mattress for free. Wow. Never. Some reputation there. Yeah. <laughs> a murderer. Uh, so we're about halfway through there. Before we go to the next commercial, we'd like to take a moment to plug our very first sponsor for How I Make Things. We're, it's very exciting. We're happy that we can be doing this for the first time on our first live show. So here we go. Hey, Greg. Yeah, Dennis? Oh, wait. Hmm. (laughs) The world can be a complicated place sometimes. Not for me. Often I'll find myself in a social situation not sure whether to laugh or cry. And sometimes, even after the fact, I'll find myself wondering, was my reaction appropriate? Well, wonder no more. Setup Solutions is here for you. Setup Solutions is a subscription service that walks you through life's awkward situations and helps you ask the question, is this funny? For example, a garbage man attempts to throw a bag of garbage into his truck. Meanwhile, the bag had other plans. And in midair, the bag opens up and rains righteous garbage down upon him. Is this funny? Well, that depends. How high did the bag get when it opened up? Was his uniform freshly washed? When his son was there telling him how proud he was of his father, and he started telling his son that he loved him, how much trash fell in his mouth? Is this funny? Ha ha. Hmm. 
It's Thanksgiving. You've just come home from your first year of college, and your family couldn't be prouder. You figure now's a good time as ever to come out as gay. Your mother accepts it, but your father has said just about the worst thing you've ever heard. After saying what he claims to be the last words he ever says to you, he sits back down. What's that sound? He sat on a whoopee cushion. Is this funny? Did everybody hear it? How wet was the whoopee? Was it enough for you to stop crying? After the sound was complete, did grandma then shout out, dinner's ready? Is, Is this funny? funny? Ha ha, hmm. A tree falls in the forest, but nobody's around to hear it. Is this funny? Depends. How much of what we don't know do we fabricate? Is real reality all we are capable of understanding, or does reality exist beyond our experiences? Did it fall on a whoopee cushion? Is, Is this, this funny? funny? Ha ha, hmm. 1914. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated in Sarajevo, setting off a chain of events that leads to multiple world wars. Millions are killed, countless more injured. Nations are divided, and the ramifications are still felt around the world to this day. Is this funny? So if you're a fan of Ellie Meekly and obviously have trouble understanding what's funny, that's setup solutions. Tragedy plus time equals answers. Ha ha. Hmm. That was our first answer. All right. Let me move on to the next one. This is a story of a humble immigrant's inspiring story of coming to America. Can we play video five, please? strokes. <laughs> That's what PTS looks like. PTSD looks like, sorry. Gideon Kotzer was born in Tel Aviv, Israel in 1944. He studied electric motor engineering in England and briefly worked in Africa before being sent home in 1967 to fight in the Six-Day War. After the Six days, can you believe it? After that, he returned to London and had a brief career managing a few nightclubs, living the life of what he described of as a big playboy. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah, yeah, he's got it down. You see the way he chews a camcorder? <laughs> Imagine the possibilities. In the early 70s, he came to the United States. In 1972, Coetzer set up his electronic shop near 139th Street and Western in Gardena, an area between Hawthorne and Compton. He was... <laughs> he slept on all those mattresses, by the way. He's testing them, chewing them, testing them. I'm crazy, I pee on mattresses. <laughs> he was subletting a piece of floor space at the CalFed department store. This is where his... Uh, first Crazy Gideon store was at. It was called Crazy Gideon's because his friends said he was crazy for choosing Gardena as a location of the electronics store. And the name stuck. Because nobody buys electronics in Gardena. Come on, wake up. Typewriter town. <laughs> as he started to learn the home electronics business, he saw an opportunity and a steady flow of returned items that are regularly sent back to manufacturers due to things like customer returns, company liquidations, overstock, and discontinued products. He'd buy those from companies, fix any problems with the merchandise, and then resell them as new or like new items at the store. This is what's referred to as the bargain basement business model. Emphasis on bargain or basement. <laughs> he soon expanded to several stores. There was apparently two in Hollywood, although I can only find the address for one. It was on Hollywood and Highland where the gift shop is, where you and I keep buying those fake Oscars. <laughs> if we buy enough, we'll get a real one. <laughs> 
1991, Gideon decided to move business to downtown LA and set up a shop in a part of town that someone called him crazy for. The downtown Crazy Gideon's was in a very shady part of town, a section of town now referred to as the Arts District, <laughs> near Little Tokyo, uh, on the other side of Alameda between 2nd and 3rd. I keep doing this with my hands, sorry. Uh, I need to map it out in my brain. Uh, by the river. Before you can go there and buy an $8 alligator hot dog, you can see the ingredients of most other hot dogs scurrying along the gutters. <laughs> Space was affordable in that part of town. Uh, he set up a shop in 44,000 square foot building at 830 Traction Avenue and became the Crazy Gideon headquarters. According to his son, Daniel Coetzer, Gideon bought the space with a mindset that if people bothered driving to this sketchy part of town, they wouldn't want to leave empty-handed. <laughs> business school. That's what you learn in business school. If you want to set up a burger stand, set up in international waters, and then people will buy burgers. It's just the way it works. Gotta eat somewhere. They set up the building in a 1917... Let me start over. The building that it set up in was from 1917. <laughs> It was built in 1917. It was a former uh, garment factory, and it looked like an abandoned factory or an empty produce market. It had bare concrete floors and walls. All the signs in the store were handwritten on cardboard, and it was full, like full, full of merchandise, like Sony big screen TVs, Panasonic camcorders, Technic stereo equipment. His business tactics started to improve. He built relationships with manufacturers and began claiming electronics that no one else wanted. Uh, they were happy to do business with someone who kept inventory off their books, and Gideon was happy because it provided an unbeatable bottom line for him. So in an electronics store would go out of business and want to sell all their products back to the company that made the products, Gideon would swoop in and buy all of those at a lower cost. And at some point, he built a good relationship with companies that they would start going to him first when they started going out of, when the product was discontinued. Gideon even became the primary agent on the West Coast for JVC's refurbished goods. Crazy Gideon's was like a salvage yard for home electronics. He sold return and refurbished items, but with that, many of his merchandise was awkward, outdated, and dusty. <laughs> but he still made money, he still got traffic. How? The commercials. <laughs> So then the commercials started. They played at odd hours, really late at night or really early in the morning. I'd say like midnight to like 6 a.m. is when I caught a couple of them. Along with apparently, they would hire the CBS crew who was moonlighting to film all these commercials for them for Crazy Gideon's, and emphasis on the crazy, by the way. Uh, Gideon screams and shouts things like, if you don't buy from Crazy Gideon, there's a problem with your head, which I like a lot. <laughs> Gideon was known to say, I stock deep and I sell them cheap, and if you don't buy from me, you're crazy. <laughs> As, as, as crazy as setting up an electronic store in Gardena. Uh, there's a commercial where a man dresses a police officer and a lady dresses as a nurse try to drag Gideon, who's in a straitjacket, out of the store and he shouts, They say I'm crazy, they're crazy, it's my store. That was just news footage. <laughs> <laughs> Call the nurse. She's a real nurse. At the end of that commercial, they're trying to pull him and they both really fall over on top of it. Have you seen that one? Yep. It's hilarious. Uh, what was really crazy was his prices, Daniel. You have to be clinically unwell if you're selling a DVD, CD, MP3 player for $39.99. He had roosters in his commercials, outdated PCs. He took bites out of the CD players. He hit himself in the head with VCRs. There's a commercial where he shouts, I want to sell the merchandise. I love you. Wow. And a moment later, if you don't buy from me, again, you're crazy. There's one where he throws an older, uh, an older TV through a new big screen TV, and it cuts away at the perfect moment. Like the, the screen bends and cracks and shatters, and they cut away. And what I was watching, what happened to the TV? <laughs> Although they were schlocky and they were super schlocky, these commercials were really effective. Crazy Gideon's got a lot of traffic because not only did he have really good deals for people who didn't care about name brands or new items, people wanted to see if Gideon was really like that in person. <laughs> and from all accounts, not really. Uh, he wasn't eating computer chips and screaming, but you could tell that he wanted to. <laughs> 
the commercials are really unforgettable. He became a local celebrity. They're going through different forums where people were talking about the commercials, and then they all would slowly, all the conversations led to like, oh yeah, I saw him here, and I saw him, like they were really excited to see Gideon places. He's like a celebrity. One of the people who was working on the crew was like, yeah, I saw him around. <laughs> Not screaming, sadly. Everyone wanted him to be screaming. In the store itself, you can see pictures of Gideon with like Mayor Villaraigosa, Sheriff Libaca, Larry King. Through the years, Gideon got more involved in real estate, and after closing his other locations down, except for the downtown one, he eventually bought the warehouse he was renting for the space, along with another 3-4 building down the street, and began to rent out space for film crews. I've read that the show 24 filmed episodes there, and early derby doll matches were filmed there. In an interview with LA Downtown News, he forgot the term for roller derby, so in trying to describe it, he said, they skate. Some girls will kick each other, break legs, break teeth, get sexy. <laughs> That's sexy indeed. <laughs> this was the early 2000s, and if you look at the history of Crazy Gideons, it really aligns with the development of that area growing into the art districts that we now know of. Uh, since the 70s, those studios and warehouses in that area were home to artists because those large spaces came cheap and you could be, they could be used as lofts or galleries, but they kept all the, the artwork indoors. In the late 80s, early 90s, there was a growth in the number of art shows and exhibits being held in those warehouses in the art district. And in the early 2000s, art that was kept on the inside started to make its way outdoors as street art became more trendy. And then the art districts got more popular. More and more warehouses were sold as lofts and the price per square foot went up. The warehouses were rezoned and converted into artist-in-residence dwellings. City signage went up around the area, officially declared as the artist district. Gideon wasn't crazy about his new neighbors and the feeling was mutual. Uh, he said in an interview about the influx of new residents, nobody likes me. <laughs> He was screaming at me. <laughs> at this point, he was making more money from renting space for TV, so he was trying to get out of the electronics business, but really all he had to do was wait. In 2009, with the change not only in the community, but with technology, it was hard. It became really hard for Crazy Gideon to keep up, so he closed up shop. Gideon had to auction off uh, the rest of his shoddy products from his warehouse, which probably all went for like two bucks or something. <laughs> After it was Crazy Gideon's 830 Traction Avenue became a hydroponic shop during what was referred to in the company bio as the gold rush of hydroponic gardening. <laughs> uh, is this the end of Crazy Gideon Coat, sir? Last year, 2016, the Arts District Brewery dedicated a beer to the local celebrity called Crazy Gideon Double IPA. <laughs> but who would advertise it? How could the Art District Brewing Company inform the masses? Can I play video six, please? Him and his son Daniel now work on Willow Street in the Arts District, running Willow Studios, which rents spaces from the former Moral Meats building on Willow Street out to film productions. You can follow him on Twitter at Gideon Coaster, but he hasn't tweeted since 2015, so hit him up. <laughs> on cold nights, if you listen real hard, you can hear him. I'm crazy. <laughs> so now for crazy from a different part of the world. No, I don't accept that. It's here. <laughs> Good old American crazy, here it comes. <laughs> Could we play clip seven, please? Here, Cal, run a minute. Oh, 
never said, but I dare you to prove that he didn't. Calvin Coolidge Worthington was born November 27, 1920 in a town that no longer exists called Bly, Oklahoma. He did not have an easy childhood and his family was so poor he and his eight siblings wore clothes made out of flour sacks and then the dust bowl hit. His dad, Benjamin Franklin Worthington they moved the family to Kilgore, Texas, and at age 13, Cal dropped out of school, which I feel like is a phrase that keeps... I'm gonna drop out of school. <laughs> and he started earning money for his family doing jobs like being the water boy in road gangs and as a cowboy. He put the boy in cowboy. <laughs> at age 15, he then joined the Civilian Conservation Corps where he blazed trails in Rocky Mountain National Park, so his life went from awful as a kid to really hard as a teenager, and then World War II hit. <laughs> He enlisted in the Army Air Forces, became a captain, and Cal Worthington, the man you just saw committing animal cruelty in the name of low, low prices, led the first daytime flight over Nazi Berlin. And then he went on to lead some of the first daytime bombing raids on Berlin. He did 29 missions, got the Air Medal five times, and was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. After two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan and the world was cured forever, Cal applied. <laughs> he applied to be a pilot for a commercial airline but was denied for not having a college degree. So in 1945, he wanted to buy a gas station in Corpus Christi, Texas, but he didn't have the money. But he did have an old car, so he decided to sell it to get the money. It took him 30 minutes to do that. By 1947, his gas business had failed, but he remembered that he was really good at selling his cars. So he started selling cars out of an empty lot, and he called this business Dependable Used Cars. I bombed the nuts. <laughs> I imagine he had his helmet and then the cowboy hat on top of <laughs> It was the end of Dr. Strange. <laughs> Within a few weeks, he had already sold five cars, but still, business wasn't great, so he sold that dealership in 1948 to buy a load of welding rods from the war surplus in Hawaii. I have no idea what he planned to do with a bunch of welding rods, but he hedged everything on them, and to save money, he drove to LA to pick them up rather than ship them to Texas. Problem was, there was a longshoreman strike, so the rods got stuck somewhere along the way, and then when they finally arrived, they were too damaged to use. And now Cal had no money and was stuck in Los Angeles. <laughs> the, a nightmare for a Texan. <laughs> 
He finally managed to sell them after two years, and in 1950, he went back to car dealing and bought a car dealership for 2,600 called Hudson Motor Car in Huntington Park on Slauson, which was an area where a lot of Okies and Texans settled after the war. The man he bought the dealership from? A Mr. Muntz. Madman Muntz. Never heard of him. I don't know. Let's re rewind the tape. <laughs> However, Huntington Park wasn't exactly the best area to be selling cars from, so he needed something to draw attention to him. And to a guy like Cal, that could only mean one thing, country and western music. <laughs> In 1959, he debuted Cal's Corral, which aired Saturday nights on either KCOP or KTLA, on TV and then AM 1110 on the radio. It was a three-hour musical variety show hosted by Sammy Masters and featured musicians like Buck Owens, Glenn Campbell, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Johnny Cash. Meanwhile, Cal himself started doing actual TV ads, but he broke away from the style that most commercials followed at the time, being like straightforward, hard sells, like crazy giddy. <laughs> and instead he started doing things that were less serious and more fun. So instead of berating you to buy a car, he'd instead be standing on his head on the hood of a car or standing upright strapped to an airplane mid-flight, all wearing the white Stetson hat. <laughs> What Madman Muntz kind of did for crazy radio ads, Cal Worthington, or he ushered in this new crazy era of TV ads. He was also apparently the first guy to show individual cars for sale in a commercial. Like he was like, hey, look, oh, yeah. as you heard, <laughs> and it all worked. He started doing this at a time when advertising on TV was shifting from being a whole show sponsored by one product to commercials like what we have now. And Cal was taking advantage by buying up long commercial slots in the cheapest times like during midnight movies and kids shows and Twilight Zone reruns. And TV itself was also getting huge. In 1947, there were only 400 TVs in LA. By 1967, there were six million TVs in LA. And they were all in my house. <laughs> Not just that, this was also the right time when owning a car in LA became the most important thing in the world. So Cal struck it just like perfect timing. By 1972, broadcasting Cal's Corral was too expensive, so he focused exclusively on commercials, but he was still being beaten out by his competition with guys like Fletcher Jones and Chick Lambert working for Ralph Williams and Encino. What did they have that Cal didn't? Dogs. Fletcher Jones would be holding a puppy in his commercial, saying he'd give you this puppy if you bought a car. Lambert was always with a German shepherd named Storm, which scary. brought back memories for Cal from the war. <laughs> so to make fun of these guys, in 1971, Cal released a commercial that started out with a voice yelling, here's Cal Worthington and his dog Spot. Then it showed Cal saying, howdy. I'm Cal Worthington, and this is my dog Spot. I found this little fella down at the pound, and he's so full of love. Then he revealed Spot to be a gorilla chained to the bumper of a car. And he said, speak, Spot, and the gorilla started screaming. That's a crime pop film. All of it. At the end of the ad, he said, I can beat or match any deal that guy in the valley can offer you. What's more, my dog can lick his dog. <laughs> People loved it, business tripled, and they went on to make a movie about the aftermath of this commercial called King Kong. Um. <laughs> the concept of the ads was that Cal was dumb and really thought Spot was a dog, but in each commercial it was just a different exotic animal. Am, am, yeah, I, that's how I pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs> he got them from Hollywood animal wranglers. He rode a hippo. He drove a tiger around in a golf cart. He had a chimpanzee in roller skates. He had a bear in roller skates who almost mauled him. He rode Shamu who mauled his trainer after the ad was over. He'd attack, he, he, he attacked. 
He He'd carry around a notepad that he'd write down commercial ideas in. The commercials were huge, but there was still one thing missing. So Sammy Masters wrote a 26 stanza song to the tune of If You're Happy and You Know It, with the chorus being Go See Cal. And there you go. The song that'll haunt your ride home tonight. <laughs> Interesting side note, Cal Worthington built one of the first electronic advertising signs off the 405 going okay. south. He convinced the city council to let him do it, telling them that his dog Spot would be very disappointed if they said no, which can only be seen as a threat. threat. Cal wasn't just advertising cars, he was advertising himself, and he became a sensation. He was referred to as the friend of every insomniac in Southern California. The TV Bureau of Advertising called him probably the best-known car dealer pitchman in TV history. He was on The Tonight Show, he was in movies, TV shows. Ted Danson's character in Made in America is based on him. Soupy Sales made fun of him. He was mentioned in the book Inherent Vice. Charles Bukowski mentioned him in some writings. Frank Zappa sang about him. Graffitied on the walls at the Mask Punk Club was, Cal Worthington was here. He's a commie. <laughs> he was described as a cross between Dale Carnegie and Slim Pickens. The ads made by his personal agency, Spot Advertising, were everywhere. The, the Spot ads ended in the mid-80s, but by the late 80s, they were still spending half a million dollars a month on ads. As many as 100 were shown in a day. One KTLA broadcast from one night in 1984 had 47 total minutes of Cal Worthington. Not 47, seven. Not as impressive. <laughs> During the oil crisis in the 70s, things were kind of rough, and he had to resort to doing traffic reports from a helicopter for radio stations in exchange for free ad time, and also... Real job, by the way. <laughs> he was also selling motorized pogo sticks for extra cash. But overall, he was doing okay. He expanded into selling Lincolns, Mercury, Mercedes-Benz's, Jeeps, Mercedes-Benz's, Chevy's. He became the top, do top Dodge retailer in the U.S., and in 1974, he opened up his flagship Worthington Ford in Long Beach at 2950 Bellflower Boulevard. At his height, he had 29 dealerships between Houston and Anchorage, Alaska, selling 200 to $300 million worth of cars a year, was spending $12 million a year to run 50,000 commercials. He claimed to have sold a million cars in his career. He seemed like a good boss. He'd often uh, keep one of the tigers in his office to scare off customers who tried to barge in and complain. But there were more than just complaints. In 1978 and 79, he was sued by California for deceptive advertising. Both cases were settled claiming there wasn't time for disclaimers in his commercials. He was also investigated for rolling back speedometers. His dad owned all the cars and he didn't want to make him think he was <laughs> And for bait and switching people, uh, <laughs> he used to promise to eat a bug if anyone could find lower prices. Someone did and came in and tried to make him eat a bug, but he refused, <laughs> so he sued him for that. He was married and divorced four times, once to a singer from Iceland, but not the one you're thinking of. There surprisingly is more than one. In his later years, he was still doing as many as four ads a day via green screen in the studio at his Big W Ranch in Orland, California that he bought from Bing Crosby, wow. where he would spend most of his time. Cal never owned a car. He never owned a car. It was just motorized pogo sticks. Pogo sticks all the way. He would just borrow them from the lot when he needed one, and he didn't even like selling cars. He, always, he wanted to fly. He always wanted to fly. He seemed to really want to stop selling cars, but he was too successful to stop. He'd say that every person is better at one thing than everyone else in the world, but few of us ever discover that one thing. His one thing was selling cars. He wished it was flying. Wow. He was still flying. <laughs> That's all. Go to college. <laughs> 
He was still flying at age 92 just 10 days before September 8th, 2013, when he died during halftime watching football with his family. As great of a performer and showman Cal Worthington was, still ranks as one of the worst halftime shows of all time. <laughs> Can we play video clip eight now? Here's Cal Worthington at his own spot! If you need a better car, go see Cal. For the best in my bar, go see Cal. If you want your hands on, if you want to say some dough, go see Cal, go see Cal, go see Cal. Jet, which I had to leave out. Special thanks to the crew here at the Comedy Central yeah, stage. <laughs> Paul Stein for arranging this whole thing to be set up. That was great. Chris Crittenden and Cindy Arvina for helping out with the lobby music. And thank you all for coming out. That was really nice of you to show up. And that has been yet another episode of LA Meekly, making our fans struggle, struggle to find parking since 2013. Thank you. Boy, oh boy, wasn't that funny. What a time. Wow. Wow. I never thought. How do they do it? How do they do it? They're boy geniuses. Double threat. Two-fourths of a threat. Both of them together. They're a half-hearted threat. (laughs) So I hope you liked our first live show. There was some confusion, so we just want to clarify, the ad we read in the middle was not real. Do not Google that. You will not find much. We are not making any money from that company. We might be negative money now. (laughs) We owe that company that's fake (laughs) money for reading that. We're being sued for slander by a fake company. Slander, man. We promise to never make up a fake sponsor again. Okay, does that make you feel better? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So let's get into oh, yes. our, the parts that we missed. There's a point in the early 50s after he started to sell televisions that he went into another venture. We're Fif- talking months here. Months. Earl Mad Mad hey, Months. Let me get the stopwatch. Let me just... Uh, sh- yeah, just shove it right in my face. <laughs> Earl Mad Mad Months moved on to his next venture, which was automobiles. Race car wizard Frank Curtis, who went on to develop a number of Indianapolis 500 winners, designed and built about 20 aluminum-bodied two sports cars which weren't very common at the time but Curtis lacked the production resources to move forward so Munz stepped in and bought the manufacturing rights because he had the money he added belts padded dashboards a liquor cabinet and an ice chest because to a car to a car yeah ask me how it turned out <laughs> uh, he painted the 394 cars he built easter egg colors like bright red <laughs> pink yellow and purple <laughs> and bunny <laughs> a man who clearly knew subtlety uh, the madman by the way <laughs> he stretched the wheelbase put in a back seat and replaced the ford engines with cadillac v8s he called it the Munz jet and sold this early sports car design for five thousand five hundred dollars which i read was a lot of money at the time but i don't know like i said he produced 394 of these months jets and managed to sell them to celebrities. Clara Bow had one. Opera singer Mario Lanza had one. Hollywood fiend Clark Gable had one. And gross-ass Mickey Rooney had one. Oh, he probably had offensive teeth on it or something. <laughs> he was trying to defile women in it. <laughs> this idea would not pan out. Rooney! 
<laughs> Rooney! This idea would not pan out in his favor, and he lost a lot of money on the month's jet. He ran production on the jet until 1954, even though he was not showing any profits. And for all his <laughs> ventures, selling used cars, selling TVs. Creating monster cars. Creating monster cars. Not monster trucks. And selling... Meet screech. Or Creech. <laughs> Meet Screech. <laughs> Just as threatening. Just as, no. as a terrifying experience. <laughs> That's the new Power Rangers reboot movie that they're doing <laughs> for... Screech for Save by the Bell. For Save by the Bell. Meet, Meet Screech. Screech. <laughs> oh, I think you're mixing a couple of characters up. Out of all the stuff that had Munz's name on it that made him fortunes, the one thing that still lasts to this day is the sports car, which lost money in its day. People will still post online pictures of them standing next to a Munz jet. Are they still around? Yeah, you, a fully restored jet can sell for $75,000 or more. They show up at car shows, I guess, because they're like 50 cars. So, you know, they have those hmm. custom car and classic car, car shows that we got stuck in, remember? You mean the lowrider parade? That's what it was, yeah. There was some stuff I skipped. I had to kind of jump forward during the recording. I talked about how he invented the predecessor to the A-Track player, the single model and the one that you had in car. He was one of the first people to put a player in a car of like any kind of player. The four-track tape was the first thing that was able to be played in a car. The four-track tape did not move on. The A-Track did, but it was played in a car because of months. The month stereo pack was what it was called. He would sell these at the spot on the Sunset Strip that later became Tower Records. Hmm. That was his store. His gimmick this time was having beautiful girls worth the counter in fishnet stockings and short skirts. Hmm. Another stunt of his... Ah, you know, these ladies make me want to buy audio equipment. <laughs> Another stunt was sending... Uh, Four tracks, please. Are you one of the tracks, ladies? Get out, okay? <laughs> Another stunt of his was sending a Buxom model to Vietnam to pass out the month stereo packs to GIs, but the federal government turned down his offer to install them in military jeeps. <laughs> Muntz paid some of his employees an extra $50 a month to drive around in white Mustangs with Muntz advertising printed on the side. He'd say, it makes them better employees. They're Muntzified. <laughs> They're Munsters. <laughs> They're Munsters. <laughs> the stereo packs were his third multi-million dollar venture. He made $30 million by this by 1967. In 1968, he opened up Muntz Electronics, which I mentioned briefly in Van Nuys. He tried a lot of different adventures at this point. Satellite dishes, aluminum homes. He rented motorcycles and motorhomes but nothing really struck uh, eventually his children James and TV Tina would take over Month Electronics they're famous in their own right like local celebrities but they never had like commercials that we can talk about that's the rest of months and time that runs you three days uh-huh. <laughs> that roughly comes out to about $913 <laughs> okay so now for the one I didn't have time for yay 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 Larry H. Parker call that number 555 law <laughs> uh, super law <laughs> <laughs> Angry law. Angry law. We'll post the commercial that okay. I was would have been talking about also that you could read along to that. Or may act it out? Yeah. I believe in you. What does he always say? <laughs> you are the future. Uh, I love you. <laughs> I'd like to take you out to dinner. <laughs> we'll split the bill. Mesothelioma. So Larry H. Parker, one in a long and proud lineage of angry white guys wearing those same exact glasses. There isn't much on his backstory, which if we were in court would be exactly what he wanted. Larry Hugh Parker's recorded story picks up in 1970 when he graduates from Cal State LA with a degree in psychology. Okay, get it. It wasn't until 1973 that he got his law degree graduating from Southwestern Law School. Within a couple of years, continued his advanced south and opened up his own law firm in the Bigsby Knowles area of Long Beach, the law offices of Larry H. Parker. Love it. Love the name. Love it, the name. Love the man. Love the fashion. <laughs> love the life. He's my true voice of summer. It wasn't Vince Scully. It was Larry H. Parker commercials. The boys of summer. The Larry H. Parker. <laughs> Vince Scully. <laughs> Business was fine, but after a while, it was time for him to start advertising. I read that his first commercial was either in 1980 or 1982, but either way, they started running regularly during daytime TV, and he was always very aggressive yeah. in all of his ads. When asked why he was so angry, he said it was because 
he was so upset with insurance companies for taking advantage of people. He made a point of appearing in the ads himself so that people could see the real guy who was going to be helping them. He'd have clients of his in some of the ads boasting how much money he helped them win. Most famously, the guy you think is Rodney King saying how Larry H. Parker helped him win $2.1 million. Do you have that guy's name? No, he's... He never revealed his name on TV. That man? The Lindbergh baby. (laughs) (laughs) He found him! Many of the ads would end with his signature line, I'll fight for you. I'll fight for you. For whatever reason, that was credentials enough for a lot of people, and by the mid-80s, his law firm was pretty successful. They claimed to have a success rate in court of 90%. Wow. And he was spending a million dollars a year on his ads. But then the rest of the lawyering world stood up and said, I object. Uh-oh. Other lawyers saw these ads as lowbrow and demeaning to their profession. This wasn't helped by the fact that Larry H. Parker is a personal injury lawyer, which have the worst reputations yeah. of all lawyers, which I make a joke about, but I know one of you is probably a lawyer. <laughs> You're writing all of this down right now. Can't have more excuses for people to sue us in this episode. <laughs> Basically, his ads were seen as promoting ripping off the system at low risk and as being wow. misleading to potential clients. For example, in one ad, Larry H. Parker bragged about how he got a client over a million dollars for being in an auto accident. Mm -hmm. What he left out was the fact that so much money was won because this client lost part of his leg in the accident. Is that what I have to do? So in 1994, the California Trial Lawyers Association's Law AB 3659 was enacted that prevented lawyers from bragging about their courtroom victories in their ads. It prevented them from not giving details when they had reenactments. They couldn't engage in glorifying hyperbole. Clients couldn't appear in the ad and had to be portrayed by actors and there had to be disclaimers saying things like no actual results are portrayed or implied and telling people that they'd be liable for filing frivolous or fraudulent lawsuits. Mm -hmm. Basically, they made it illegal to make a Larry H. Parker commercial. (laughs) Larry, of course, felt targeted and said that they did this because they didn't like him taking all the cases from other lawyers, but he adapted. And the next year, he ended up having the last laugh, all thanks to America's favorite criminal, O.J. Simpson. (gasps) What did you do with O.J. Simpson? You heard what happened. No. (laughs) He won the Super Bowl. Uh In 1995, the O.J. Simpson trial was being televised on daytime TV. And who do you think was being seen by millions every commercial break every single day? So he got a big boost from that and today claims to have won over $1 billion for his clients. The law offices of Larry H. Parker have offices all over Southern and Middle California and in Arizona and seem to have a specialty in dog bite cases. Larry himself cares a lot about giving back to the Long Beach community and bought and donated four apartment buildings to Long Beach City College that they turned into classrooms. His biggest cases recently have been someone suing him for screwing up her claim and ruining her life. And he also represented someone suing DJ Lethal of Limp Biscuit for a fender bender. So he's doing fine. Things are going <laughs> all right. Big cases. Tackling what's important in today's world. Bringing down Limp Biscuit <laughs> Has to be done. It's a mercy killing. It's not all just for the nookie. <laughs> Some of it's for us. I'll fight for the nookie. <laughs> Since we started doing research for this episode, I've been noticing things everywhere. Like, yeah. we all know that if you search for anything on Google, suddenly your Facebook feed and your Instagram feed are just <laughs> like, happening? like, why am I seeing so many sit and sleep? things on this but this happened in real life yeah i was driving to work and i realized i was driving right by michael's furniture and (laughs) and we keep seeing sit and sleep trucks everywhere stores and keys i was driving by your house and i had to stop for a red light and i didn't want to but i had to and i stopped i skidded to a stop like ugh. and then as i said that a sit and sleep thing drove a big truck drove by full of mattresses and i thought (laughs) you're You're stopping for me (laughs) my cousin michael who came to our live show it's been two days since we did our live show and then today he sent me a picture of him 
wandering around downtown doing his job and he sent me a picture of him with crazy gideon who he ran into he told crazy gideon that we, we did a segment on him and crazy gideon just did apparently just started laughing like he does in the commercial <laughs> whatever he does and he threw a glass of whatever was closest to him all over himself started eating computer chips out of his pocket or whatever he does yeah that's the thing with like living in la you you are probably gonna end up at like the arc light or the galsons and you're gonna run into like a big celebrity that you love but then like you also run into like local celebrities like every time i see Angeline's blue uh pink pink sorry what did i say blue like, i almost said mustang but it's not a mustang it's a her corvette. blue mustang her blue mustang Angeline and her blue mustang what is it it's, it's a, a pink corvette or something is it a corvette right i think so i think it's corvette like you'll be driving around and you'll see Angeline's pink corvette or whatever kind of car it is you know you know what i gotta go what? i gotta leave sorry what wait what do we mean what do you mean i'll, ex- Daniel, I'll explain i gotta go i'll explain later are you kidding me I don't even know what to do when you're gone. Oh, my God. Okay, well, not much to do by myself. He said he'd never leave me, but here we are. I don't really know. Okay, I guess I'm gonna, I'll answer a couple. Why am I talking out loud? Because there's a microphone, that's why. I guess I'll answer some uh, emails or some fan tweets or something from these ungrateful goons. Uh, this one comes from at this point, what are we doing? Where do you guys record your episodes? Hangar 18 at Area 51, why? E.T., the extraterrestrial. That's my name. Don't wear it out. Oh, yeah, you're from the 80s. Let's do lunch, baby. Okay, well, before we do that, uh, can you do me a favor, E.T.? I have a list of people who helped us get the word out, and they, like, shared our posts for our first live show, and it's sold out, so we owe a big thanks to them. Can you help me thank them? Ugh. Gag me with a spoon. E.T., this is serious. Here, a big thanks to... Brian Cox. And also... Vanessa Gonzalez. Let's not forget... Vanessa Gritton. Couldn't have done it without... Emily Gonzalez. Love you forever. Bell Resident Club. It meant the world to us. Uncle Fabi. You're always there for us. Eric Estrada. Not that one. Thanks a million. Lizzie Granillo. You're the greatest. Jen Malone. Have a good summer. Hilda Ambries. Be my Valentine. Nick Gonzalez. You're the light of my life. Jason Vega. It meant the world to us. Melissa Johnson. I'm lost without you. Attila the Hun. I'll do anything in the world for you. Luciano Pavarotti. You're a swell guy. Cotton Candy. I owe the world to you. Elliot <gasps> Gould. Oh, Jing, thanks, E.T. Thanks. Leave. Ouch. Sick burn. Where were you? Sorry, I, I I had to go watch E.T. for a minute. I love that little guy. I'd do anything in the world to meet him. What'd I miss? Nothing. Why does it smell like Reese's Pieces? No.
All right. We also have another show coming up. Yeah, another live show if you're into that kind of thing. It's less of an actual podcast of ours and more yeah. of just a discussion of The Twilight Zone. Yeah, we, we're probably going to record it and release it as like a B-side. We're going to be talking about moral themes that you'd find in The Twilight Zone. We're very excited about it. It's going to be at the Casa Verdugo Library, 1151 North Brand Boulevard, Glendale. The phone number there is 818-548-2047. It's going to be free. It starts at 7 o'clock. Do you uh, need to reserve anything? No, it's first come, first serve. It's a Thursday night. Come dress as your favorite pig masked character yeah, from the twilight if zone. you want to wrap your head up in bandages and say that you're uh, you're going to be sent to a ghetto of freaks that's fine with me <laughs> whatever you like whatever you're into freak we're going to try to tie it to la as much as we can but it probably just might just be twilight zoney so take a break in the meantime you can take a break from not leaving us reviews and you can leave us a review I hope you enjoyed your vacation of not leaving us reviews because <laughs> summer school is back in session. School is back in session. Review school, that is. <laughs> Leave us a review on iTunes. Search for us, Ellie Meekly. If you have the podcast app on an iPhone, just yeah. open it up. You're signed in. Leave us a star rating. That's pretty easy to do if you feel like... I should say so. And if you feel like leaving, I don't know, like a paragraph, even a sentence of, you know, what you think about us, hopefully it's positive. If not, that's an email thing. <laughs> we can settle this in court. I'll fight for you. <laughs> we have someone who's going to fight for us just to let you know, though. We're before you say, say who he is, it's Crazy Gideon. <laughs> and he knows how to fight. You can email us, ally.meekly at gmail.com. We are gearing up to do more field trips for the summer. So send us an email if you have any ideas for us. You can follow us on Twitter at Meekly, uh, Instagram, Ally underscore Meekly. Post you, pictures every day on there. Yeah. If you like us on Facebook, like us on Facebook at Ally Meekly, search Ally Meekly. We have a Tumblr page, allymeekly.tumblr.com, which is our home base. There's a podcast archive there. If you were at the live show and got pictures of anything, make sure to tag us so we can take a look at what you got. Yeah, we like to see ourselves when we're panicking and sweating under the hot lights for you. I like to see my head under the worst light possible. (laughs) It's what I really like. (laughs) 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 We're going to leave you guys with a nice little treat. We had uh, lobby music before the show that I don't think everybody got to hear, but we had a couple friends of ours, Chris Crittenden and Cindy Arvina, do like fake Art LeBeau calls. Introducing the songs we picked for the things. And we asked them to do three and they did one for every song which was fantastic yeah. and they're very Ellie Meekly they're very on brand Ellie Meekly so I'm very yeah. happy about them we like them a lot and we wanted you guys to be able to hear them and if you're interested in Chris and Cindy who are two very funny comedians in the Los Angeles area they host a comedy show the last Tuesday of the month at the Karma Lounge in East Hollywood they have one that's just passing on the 28th sorry but you can catch them next month Cindy herself has a podcast coming out which I'm one of the guests it's called You Do What it's about habits that people have and weird things that they do and I was on it talking about thrift shopping <laughs> and the nun's habit that you always wear it's just a thing that I'm keeps surprised warm. you didn't wear it on the live show well I just didn't want people to get judgy you know <laughs> I didn't <laughs> want to bring religion into this but for now we're going to play these things for you and the uh, we're going to play 30 seconds of each of the songs because we don't know what the legal limit is yeah. and we that sounds about right yeah so we're going to play you the intros for the songs and then a little bit so you get a taste you'll hear what the songs are called should you wish to find them and listen to them yourself yes. which I hope you should they're very good songs we wanted to put people in a good old-timey mode yeah not that old-timey though like 40s 50s 60s like new old-timey yeah new wave old-timey like uh that stupid modern jukebox thing i hate uh, i cut you off no you had you had had lightning in your eyes and i struck it down yeah the the storm has passed (laughs) so yeah enjoy this we hope you like the show that's been the postscript to an episode of ellie meekly we're not doing two catchphrases for you enjoy the playlist see you next month suckers this next one comes from Bandito to Tweety Bird. 
Bandito says, Words cannot express how I feel about you. Here's Aquarella by Joe Carlier. This dedication comes from Melvin to Spooky. He says, Ever since I saw you in that orange jumpsuit, I knew you were the one. I love you, Vato. Here's Just One Look by Doris Troy. This dedication comes from Sad Girl to Junior. She says, Baby, you broke my heart already, but since we got engaged, I'm happier than ever. Here's And Then He Kissed Me by The Crystals. One here from Griffith J. Griffith to Donna Petronilla. He says, Please just take this curse away. I already donated the land. We can make this work. Here's Donna by Richie Valens. dedication from Payasa to Gloria. Payasa says, Thank you for always holding me down, comadre. See you again in three years. Here's Golden Teardrops by the Flamingos. I 
Here's a dedication from Skippy to Chromo Boy. Skippy says, Every day is a parade with you. Here's Hello Mabel by Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. Hello Mabel, are you able to come out today? It's a lovely day. Hello Mabel, if you're able, slip out on your own. Leave your shuffle on, and we can be alone. People may say that it will never do, but I can't help the way. This dedication comes from Uncle Forey to Bella. He says, I can always count on you for a good scare. Here's Look Out, There's a Monster by Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. And three, four. This dedication comes from Mary Pickford to Tomaine Tommy. She says, From the day I tried your chili burger, I knew I had to have you. And I know one fine day you'll love me the way I love you. Here's One Fine Day by the Chiffons. <laughs> Another one here from Mary Pickford to Tomaine Tommy. She says, I got sick from one of your chili burgers, but I'm not mad. Nothing can change the way I love you. Here's Nothing Can Change This Love by Sam Cooke. If I go My final dedication of the night comes from Gonzo and Dino to L.A. They say, We've come a long way from hustling to recording a history podcast. This one goes out to our city of angels. Here's Earth Angel by the Penguins. Mom. 
all the time I'm just a fool 